these guys back with us. Uh, I am Pastor Seth, and I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hosea uh, for the next few minutes. The message today is entitled, The Relentless Love of God, and we are beginning a new series. We just recently finished our study in First and Second Timothy on distinctives of a gospel-shaped church, and for the next 12 weeks, our focus is going to be on the subject of return, lessons from the minor prophets. And then after that, I preached through uh, the book of Acts almost 20 years ago, and I plan to work uh, back through it from a fresh perspective once we conclude this current series in the Minor Prophets. It was 1917 on a piercing winter night in Greenwich Village. Huddled in the back room of a bar known as the Hellhole was a bohemian gathering of artists, intellectuals, and misfits. Among them were the country's premier playwright, Eugene O'Neill and the left-wing journalist, Dorothy Day, who was his close friend and confidant. O'Neill, the playwright, seemed unusually melancholy that night, and he began to quote from memory the Francis Thompson poem, The Hound of Heaven, which describes our common flight from God who lovingly pursues us. And it goes in part like this. I fled him down the nights and down the days, I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways. Of my own mind and in the midst of tears, I hid from him. Now, Dorothy Day had never heard O'Neill speak of this poem before, and it sobered her. In fact, everyone who was there that night uh, ended up in a hushed tone. Day and O'Neill parted company not to see each other again for a whole decade. O'Neill wrote of a God who failed to make good of his promises of sin and shame and the terror of death. He went on to win four Pulitzers and the Nobel Prize in literature, but happiness eluded him along the way. Day married twice, finally bore a daughter by a man she never married, and in December of 1927, she surrendered to the relentless pursuit of God. She lived a life of poverty with no income and no security, and she cared for the homeless on the streets not far from the hellhole. She wrote of a merciful God. Dorothy Day never stopped praying for her friend who had opened her eyes with the words, it is one of those poems, she wrote in her autobiography, that awakens the soul, recalls to it the fact that God is its destiny. We don't know if Eugene O'Neill's soul was ever awakened. What we do know is that while he was on his deathbed in Boston in 1953, Dorothy Day was there with him once again. She summoned a priest to his side. Keeping vigil, she prayed, and she prayed that he would at last unclench his fist and grasp the hand that had been reaching out to him for, for so many years. Hoping to hear the words he recited in a bar room on that blustery winter night, rise, clasp my hand, and come. God is the one who pursues us with his relentless love. As we think about our subject before us, we're going to be focusing on the minor prophets. Now, just a simple delineation between the major prophets and the minor prophets is in categorizing and understanding these Old Testament books. With the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel, uh, 
being the longer books and being more broadly focused. The minor prophets are shorter in content and their focus is more narrow. So the 12 books of the minor prophets include 67 chapters with the shortest book, Obadiah, including just one. Now, the prophetic books can sometimes be challenging to outline because they, they alternate between sin and judgment, repentance and restoration. Hosea is structured around these cycles of judgment and restoration and how God would call out the people for their sin and then bring them back to himself. And it's divided into two major sections. The first being chapters 1 through 3. And there's this painful story, this painful directive that God gives to Hosea to marry Gomer, a prostitute. Now, some wonder if she was already a prostitute when they got married. I believe that she was because it's fitting with the story. And Hosea's marriage to Gomer is a metaphor for the relationship between God and his covenant people. And through this painful story and this metaphor, uh, we find God's love for the idolatrous nation of Israel shown through these themes of sin, judgment, and forgiving love. Now, this wife that he married would bear him three children, a son named Jezreel after the valley of Jezreel, a daughter named Lo-Ruhamah, which means no mercy, and a son named Lo-Amai, which means not my people. All of these are significant because of God's relationship with Israel. Hosea 1 in verse 1 identifies the prophet Hosea as the author of the book. Uh, he prophesied for a fairly long period of time as far as these uh, 10 years go of the prophets. And the kings who ruled during his prophecy are also listed. He wrote the book to remind us and Israel this. God is a loving God who can and should be trusted for deliverance. God is a loving God who can and should be trusted for deliverance. Now, the northern kingdom struggled with religious pluralism. They especially had this issue of worshiping the false god Baal. Baal was the storm god in the Canaanite pantheon and was believed to be the source of rain and fertility on the land. God's steadfast love is shown through this long-suffering husband and this unfaithful wife. The second section is from chapter 4 to chapter 14 where Hosea warns the nation about the danger of worshiping idols and then he includes the theme of restoration. So here was the issue. The people were guilty of covenant unfaithfulness, and yet the promise was God would restore them. We are guilty of sin, and yet the promise is God will restore us when we look to him in repentance. So I want us to focus on several sections of Hosea as we look at this thematically, and this will be the pattern for the coming weeks. And if you want a starting point, I'm going to begin in Hosea 4. I'm also going to make reference to Hosea 6, and then we're going to conclude with Hosea 14. And I want to show you in these few moments that we have together, three actions of the love of God. Three actions of the love of God. The first is this, the love of God warns. It warns. 
Hosea 4 and verse 6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I'll reject you from serving as my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your sons. So I want you to think about it this way. It's as though Israel is in a courtroom. God himself is the one who is bringing the charge against the people. He's bringing them into his court of law to make his point through the prophet. And it was a dark era in the period of Israel's history. The northern kingdom was in decline. They're going to fall in the 8th century B.C. Apostasy is rampant. Things are bad. People have turned away from God. Hosea focuses on what are basically these temporary judgments that God's bringing about, including economic difficulties, famine, death, exile, and more. Further, God warned and sounded the alarm. He predicted that Assyria was coming in an invasion that led to the fall of Samaria. Now, what is clearly in focus here is the judgment of God. Sometimes we think about the judgment of God in a harsh sense, but it's intended to be an expression of the love of God, that God would exercise righteous judgment against the sin of Israel, against the sin of Gomer, against our sin. And Hosea was commanded to make a choice, to love and to marry Gomer, who would become involved in physical adultery, just as God was confronted with the choice to be faithful to the people of Israel who were committing spiritual adultery. Notice what verse 8 says here. They feed on the sin of my people. They have an appetite for iniquity. Now, I want to just focus in for a minute on this phrase, an appetite for iniquity, or they desired iniquity. Sound familiar? Certainly similar to the culture that we find ourselves in and maybe even participating in at times. And uh, there are no boundaries for these people. As people would say today, there are no rules just right. You can break all the rules. You can peel off your inhibitions as the ad goes and make your own road. You can live without boundaries and make your own rules. So here was a people who were guilty of swearing and lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery and breaking all bounds, and they had an appetite for sin. And the picture is of a people stumbling and it being so dark that the prophet is brought down to the level of the people, and the people were destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Now here's the issue, and this is the temptation for us as well. The people knew about God, but they did not know and obey God. They knew about who he was and what he had said, but they rejected knowledge. And that's a parallel to having forgotten the law. So they didn't just lack knowledge. They actively rejected what they had. They rejected God's law and God warned them that he was going to reject them and their children and destruction was coming. Now, let's put judgment in perspective from the biblical narrative. God is the judge of all the earth. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
Jesus is the agent who has been entrusted with judgment by the Father. He's committed no sin, and all judgment has been entrusted to him. A day of judgment is coming, and there are various judgments outlined in the Bible. The sins of believers have already been judged at Calvary. We will be judged and rewarded based on our service to God in this life as Christians. The unsaved dead will appear before God and answer for their sins at the great white throne judgment. And it will be the last word of a holy God respecting sin and unrighteousness and the people who have committed it. Hosea affirmed that after a period of judgment, God would pour out blessings. And this is part of that cycle that I was talking about, this repeated time and again. And it would appear in the latter days, but God's judgment will remain on them for more than 700 years. Now, the reference to the latter days, generally speaking, and more broadly speaking, encompasses the church age. One commentator noted the first stage was the inauguration of Christ's kingdom when Jesus established the foundation of the earth. The second stage is the continuation of Christ's kingdom throughout church history. And the third stage will be the consummation of the kingdom when Christ returns in glory and makes all things new. So it doesn't matter if people believe this, they accept it, or they don't believe it and they reject it. The reality of judgment and accountability to God is certain. And because of the love of God, he warns us what to expect. The first century church was uh, tempted to think that judgment was not coming. But the Lord is patient and the time will come. But in the meantime, the Lord warns. And he tells us in his word that the wages of sin is death. He tells us that whatever we sow, we will also reap. That our iniquities have made a separation between us and and God. That there's a way that seems right to man, but the end is death. The wages of sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the first action of the love of God is that the love of God warns. And I'm here to tell you today, don't ignore the warning. The warning light is there for a reason, to tell you that there's a problem. And not only does the love of God warn, but the love of God also pursues. Now we pick back up in Hosea 6 and verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us and he will heal us. He has wounded us and he will bind up our wounds. He will revive us after two days. And on the third day, he will raise us up so we can live in his presence. Let us strive to know the Lord. His appearance is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring showers that water the land. Come, let's return to the Lord. Return to the worship of him from our idolatries. Put our hope in him rather than putting confidence in ourselves or anything that the world has to offer or any other creature in this world. We put our trust in him And all the while, he has been pursuing us. He's coming after us. 
He's wanting to warn us. He's wanting to tell us of his love. And in light of the chastening hand of God, Hosea leads Israel in what amounts to a prayer of humility. Hosea is trusting in the love of God, and he could see the the living hand of God even in the midst of his being corrected. And the message contains both an exhortation and a promise. He has torn us, and he will heal us. He has wounded us, and he will bind up our wounds. He will revive us. And Hosea points to something here that seems humanly impossible. It seems like the people were far too gone, that the situation was too dark, that the circumstance was too serious. And yet Hosea says the Lord will revive us. He'll bring us back to vitality. He'll bring us back to new life. In contrast to our past failures, in contrast to what Israel had done, they were going to turn and become a source of healing and life by the grace of God. Now, there's an important expression here, after two days and on the third day. Now, just in a straightforward sense, it refers to a short period of time, indicating that the revival would occur soon. But God marks out here what seems like an impossible healing. What was done metaphorically for the nation of Israel, God's Son does for us. God's Son is the one who comes to us like the rain. He's the one who came on a mission from heaven to earth to seek and to save the lost and to pursue us. The scripture says in Psalm 23 and verse 6, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The original idea is to pursue or to chase. So I want you to think about it this way. God's love does not just come to us at a casual pace. Not at all. We are being pursued with an active intention to save. And he comes to us when we are most in need. God is the one who is as reliable as the sun. His love and his blessings come like the seasonal rains that Israel depended on for life. Most of those rains will come between December and March. The winter rains come at the beginning of uh, the period of, of autumn, softening the ground for sowing. The summer's almost completely dry. The rain is eagerly sought. It's appreciated as a great blessing. And this is how the refreshing comes from the Lord to us. The Bible guides us to pursue God and promises that God is the initiator of those spiritual pursuits. And when we're pursuing him, he's already been pursuing us. I like the way A.W. Tozer put it. He said, for all things, God is the great antecedent. Because he is, we are, and everything else is. He is that dreaded unbeginning one, self-caused, self-contained, and self-sufficient. Tozer says we cannot think rightly of God until we begin to think of him as always being there and that he was there first. From the very beginning, God has pursued his people in his creation. Adam and Eve ran from God in the Garden of Eden, and yet God sought them out. 
Jesus taught the parables on the lost sheep and the lost coin to teach us that God pursues what is lost. And that's what Jesus came to do. Hosea 13 and, and verse 14 says, I shall ransom from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. And then he says, oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. So as the love of God warned and the love of God pursued, he's making a prophetic point here in Hosea 13 because death was coming, but Jesus changes everything. And the apostle Paul introduced this prophecy in 1 Corinthians 15. If you ever been to a funeral especially or heard 1 Corinthians 15 quoted, you would have known immediately what this verse referenced. And it's a reminder to us that even though the conditions are negative and everything's about as bad as it could possibly be, Jesus changes everything. He changes everything. He's the game changer. Even when we are dead in our trespasses and our sins, Christ died for the ungodly. He did for us what we did not deserve, nor could we earn. And I want you to know, even when you feel alone in the world, you can have the assurance that God is with you and he's pursuing you and he does not give up on you. Psalm 139 and verse 7 and 8 says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Now, the people in the days of Hosea had... uh, forsaken and abandoned mercy, even though they brought their sacrifices. Now, there's a a very important point here because God wanted their hearts. He wanted their lives to be right. So you can go through outward motions and outward exercises of religion and your heart be far from God. That is a very real problem. And God's heart and pursuit of us is toward a relationship with him. And it's the love of God that pursues. And I say to you, as the love of God pursues, don't ignore him. And then the third and final action, the love of God restores. Now let's move to Hosea 14 and verse 1. And then I'm going to make reference to several verses a little bit further down. Hosea 14 and verse 1 says, Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled in your iniquity. And then verse 4 says, I will heal their apostasy. I will freely love them, for my anger will have turned from them. God knew Israel was caught up in apostasy, but he promised to heal them. Not because Israel deserved it, but because he loved them freely and would turn his anger from them. Verse 5 of chapter 14, I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily and take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His new branches will spread and his splendor will be like the olive tree. His fragrance like the forest of Lebanon. The people will return and live beneath his shade. They will grow grain and blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. So notice quickly what God promises here. He promises to restore growth, they will grow. To restore beauty, 
they will blossom like the lily. To restore strength, they will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. To restore value, his splendor will be like the olive tree. And then to restore abundance, his renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. But now I want you to note this very carefully, and this is a very important spiritual principle. The key to restoration is repentance. Let me say that again. The key to restoration is repentance. The people will return. What is repentance? It's a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. It's deep regret over something that's been done wrong that leads to a change in thinking and behavior and a taking of responsibility for that thinking and behavior. And you better be certain that God will bring about circumstances in life to bring a person to repentance. And often what God does to bring a person to repentance is to bring his chastening hand on a person, the weight of the sin, to bring them to sorrow so that they can repent and be restored. And the intent of repentance is to lead to restoration. The point of restoration is to lead to renewed usefulness. And God's guidelines for judgment are that all who repent of their sin and turn to Jesus Christ will be eternally forgiven and restored, and everyone who doesn't will be forever separated from God. So here's the beauty of it. When we repent... God restores and he renews. The love of God restores and the call is to repent. And I say to you today, don't miss that call to repent. If there's something in your life that is not right with God, if you've not yet met Jesus as your Savior and you've not embraced the gospel yet, then trust in him. And let's look finally at Hosea 14 and verse 9, and I'm going to come toward a close. Let whoever is wise understand these things and whoever is insightful recognize them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. In Hosea, we find the children of God guilty of apostasy and idolatry. Who is wise? It's the one who realizes and understands these things. Who is prudent? It's the one who heeds the warning. And we are called to God today, now. If we are prudent in our thinking, we will not put it off. And we will recognize this. Hosea tells us here in verse 9, God's ways are always right. He'll never steer you wrong. He'll never send you down a dead-end road. He's always bringing us back, wooing us back to him, calling us to return. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray, and then Chosen Road's going to close out our time, and then I'll be here in the front as we conclude the service. So, Father, we're thankful for this message today from Hosea, that you are the God who brings us to yourself, who restores us when we repent. You bring renewal and restoration when we put our faith and our trust in you. I pray, God, if there are any who need to come to Christ and make him Savior and Lord today for the first time, that today would be the day. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that might be dealing with something that they need to get right with God, that today would be the day they do that and that they not live with the weight of unconfessed, unrepentant sin. 
Thank you for your love for us, God, that is beyond anything we could measure. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.